0: want to invite you to open your Bibles today to the book of Acts, chapter number 25, Acts 25, where we are back in the book of Acts this morning, um, and our journey there with the Apostle Paul to pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And um, as we think about what we're going to look at this morning, some of you are old enough to remember some things that happened in 1972. I know that's been a while ago, Right? But there were two investigative reporters, two men by the name of Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who detonated one of the most explosive uh, bombshells in all of American history when they researched and discovered the now infamous Watergate story. Anybody remember Watergate? Oh yeah, a lot of you do. I can tell who's older and who's not. It dominated the news, it seemed like, for several years. I don't know how long it actually was, but it seemed like forever. It resulted in the eventual resignation of uh, President Richard Nixon. Over the years in this country, such journalists have exposed other governmental plots and schemes and so forth. And we're all better for that. If only we had some today with that same passion and that same determination to get at the truth and to share it. Well, the Roman governor in Acts chapter 25 could also have benefited from someone like that. If you're able this morning, I invite you to stand as we read about that from Acts chapter 25. We're going to begin this morning in verse number 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with him, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. If however I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Keep your Bibles open this morning as we pray, God, anoint your word this morning, anoint my lips, anoint our ears, and anoint our hearts. For we ask in the holy name of Jesus and all of his people said, "Man, you may be seated this morning. Everybody say, Paul. When we last left Paul, he was languishing there in a prison in Caesarea out there on the Mediterranean coast, having been left there because of Governor Felix's indecision, unwillingness to make a ruling. As you remember, Felix was a very wicked, a very crooked Roman governor. He put off not only the judgment on the apostle Paul, he also put off a decision about his own salvation. And although we've left Paul in prison for a couple of weeks now while we took time to remember the resurrection of Jesus, it's nothing compared to the two years that he actually spent in prison. However, since his family and friends were probably allowed some freedom to visit him, we can assume that probably Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, as well as Philip and some of the other members of the early church there in Caesarea probably visited him fairly regularly. I'm sure those visits were very refreshing and very encouraging to the Apostle Paul. The last verse of 24 that we covered a couple of weeks ago tells us that Governor Felix was replaced while Paul was in prison. And as we mentioned then, Felix had managed to provoke even more hatred between Jews and Romans by, by killing several thousand Jews there in Caesarea and then seizing the property of many more. Because of that, Felix got recalled to Rome by the governor and uh, by the emperor and was never heard from again. As we said, speculation is that he probably either killed himself or was forced to do so because of what he had done. Um, One proof for the accuracy with which Luke writes the book of Acts as well as his own gospel is the fact that he records with exactness the names and the dates and the times and the places that are mentioned in all of these chapters which we are verified by archaeology, they're verified by other writers, they're verified by other historians. We find that Luke was very accurate in everything that he wrote, and like Bernstein and Woodward, he was an investigative reporter of the First Order. Probably a poem in there somewhere, isn't it? At any rate, Nero appointed Portius Festus to replace Felix in A.D. 60. Everybody say Festus. Not the one from Gunsmoke, okay? Historians actually paint this governor in a very positive light. He was a very huge improvement over Felix, whom he replaced. Unlike Felix, that was a former slave, Festus came from a higher social background And most historians said that he was firm but fair. Just what you want from every teacher, right? You also want that from every governor as well. Festus was not given to bribes or manipulation. But he did, however, inherit a hot mess that Felix left behind for him when he left. It was an area that was poisoned with bigotry, with hatred and division, as well as secrecy throughout the whole region that Festus would rule over. Nevertheless, where Felix procrastinated, Festus went right to work. If he was going to rule over the Jews, he decided to go to work right away. He took the bull by the horns, went up to Jerusalem, three days after he got into the province, so that he could meet with the leaders of the Jews and let them know who was in charge. Interestingly enough, This guy named Paul is still at the top of the list of those Jewish leaders of issues that they want taken care of. Now, you would have thought that they would have had bigger fish to fry by now. They had lost a couple thousand fellow Jews up in Caesarea. Paul is in prison. You would think he would have been dropped off their radar by now. He's not. He's very much still in the forefront. They hate this man with a passion They want to see him killed once and for all. So they try basically the same plot that they tried with Commander Lysias back up in Jerusalem. Only the location is different. Uh, Festus, send Paul back up here to Jerusalem for a trial here. So we can kill him along the way. Festus, however, will not be pushed around. And maybe, maybe he smells a rat. He knows something's not quite true, not quite right. And so he says, How about if you come to my place instead? And so they do. The next day, after Festus gets back to Caesarea, he convinced the court uh, convened the court. This guy doesn't mess around, does he? Very next day, he's going to resolve this Paul issue that Felix left boiling on top of his stove. Once again, the Jews let fly with their accusations. Luke doesn't tell us what those accusations are. They're, they're probably the same ones that Tertullus had made uh, two years earlier against him when, when he was arguing the case. He started riots. He defiled the temple. He advocated rebellion against Rome. Again, not one shred of evidence to prove any of that. But, of course, that never stops a good lawyer, right? Without a court-appointed attorney, Paul argues his own case, denies all the charges, pointing out their lack of evidence. He said, i got no proof for any of this. And so it became their word against his word. And Paul was a Roman citizen, Festus was duty-bound to protect all Roman citizens. And if Paul had been obviously guilty, Felix would have killed him a long time ago. The fact that Paul is still alive indicates there was no clear evidence of anything. As a crafty politician, however, Festus attempts... Attempts to move the trial to Jerusalem so that he can maybe score some points with the Jews and see if maybe the thing can be resolved. But he knew that this trial could not be moved without the consent of the defendant. And Paul wasn't about to give consent. He may have been born at night, but it wasn't last night. He had a memory that was at least two years long and about how they had they had schemed and plotted to kill him earlier. And so, to prevent further monkey shines, Paul appeals to Caesar. Everybody say Caesar. At the time, Nero was the emperor in Rome. And every Roman citizen who was charged with a capital crime had the right to appeal to Caesar. This protected people from corrupt local rulers. But it was no protection against corrupt national ones like Emperor Nero would become before his reign was over. What made Paul's case a little bit different is that no verdict had yet been rendered. Paul actually preempted Festus. He preempted the Jews once again by playing his Roman citizenship card. Now I'm sure, I'm sure that enraged the Jewish leaders. Can't believe he's doing this again. But Festus probably was greatly relieved. This meant he wouldn't have to make any kind of a judgment or ruling upon it. This would help him to dodge a bullet and so he grants the appeal. Look at verse 12 in your scripture. It says, after Festus had conferred with his council, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. Now, as we've said before, Paul was no dummy. Okay, he evidently took his Prevagen regularly. Instead of just being a pawn, instead of just going along with the Jews or going along with Festus, he outmaneuvered them by appealing to Caesar. Paul was very wise to remain under Roman authority the romans they earned a bad name later on to be sure but for the first 30 to 40 years the romans were not unkind to christianity they actually protected paul they the romans rescued paul from a, from a riot Not once, but twice there in the temple area. The Romans rescued Paul from a riot up in Ephesus. The Romans allowed him to go to Caesarea. They moved him to Caesarea to avoid a murder plot. But don't worry. The Romans will catch up under Nero in a few years. The Jews were the problem early on, persecuting the Christians. But Rome would certainly catch up. For some time, Paul had wanted to go to Rome. He was now going to get his wish. Now, he was a prisoner. He wasn't going as a free man now. But it surely looked like the cheapest ticket and the quickest ticket to be able to get there. Now, appealing to Caesar didn't mean that he would automatically have his case heard by the emperor. But it did mean that it would be heard in Rome and it would be the the highest court in all of the Roman Empire like our Supreme Court today. In fact, if Paul won his case in Rome, it might actually lead to the recognition of Christianity throughout the entire Roman Empire. That would happen, but probably not for about another 300 years. As John Stott says... The future of the gospel was at stake as powerful forces arranged themselves for and against it. Look at verse number 13. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said... There's a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to hand over any man before he has faced his accusers and has had an opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered that the man be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they didn't charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. When Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until he could send until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. He replied, Tomorrow you will hear him. Everybody say Agrippa. Agrippa invented the vice script. No, not really. We meet another individual from this early time period, another ruler. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod the Great who killed all the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. His full name was King Herod Agrippa II, which obviously means he was the son of King Herod Agrippa I. This man, his dad, had killed the Apostle James back earlier in the book of Acts. He also is the man that was struck down and eaten by worms when he accepted the worship of people that we read about and studied back in Acts chapter 12 last year. That was this guy's dad. Agrippa the I controlled much of the land which was now under Festus's control because when Senior died... Junior was only 17. He wasn't old enough to inherit the throne. And so instead, they gave him a little bit of plot of land way up here in Mayberry, okay? It was way out of the way, hardly anything. It's in modern-day Lebanon. Now, as he got older, they did give him more territory, which included all of this. And he actually, up here at Caesarea Philippi, He built what the ruins of this temple are still there today, and this is what they say it probably looked like at the time. In a very odd arrangement, this man was given control over the temple down in Jerusalem, even though that wasn't in his territory, and he also controlled who the high priest would be. And so, pretty odd that he would control territory way up here, but also have control over some things down there. Well, since Agrippa was a trusted Roman ruler, he had Jewish blood as well, since he had been around these Jews for a right good while, all of his life actually, he could be a great help to Newby Festus. Agrippa knew not only the landscape, he also knew all the players. In fact, he had appointed the high priest, Ishmael, with whom Agrippa met, Just to, uh, uh, yeah, with who Festus met, just a couple of verses earlier back up in Jerusalem. But Agrippa didn't come there by himself. Everybody say Bernice. Bernice was Agrippa's sister. Along with Drusilla, who was the wife of Felix that we met a couple of weeks back. And aside from having quite a hairdo, (laughs) Terry, do you think you could put something together like that? Um, Miss Bernice got around. After her first husband died, Bernice married and had two children with her uncle before he died. She then lived with her brother, this Agrippa, which many believed to involve incest. She married another king, only to divorce him and return to her brother. Later, she would become a mistress to the Roman general, Titus, when he came to besiege the city of Jerusalem. She went with him back to Rome and lived openly with what would be the future emperor, Titus, until the Romans complained about her being a Jew. What was her attraction? I guess it must have been her hair, right? I don't know. But I think the soap opera writers surely studied ancient history when they put their plots together. Nevertheless, Agrippa and Bernice will get to hear from Paul in chapter 26, God willing, next week. But before we get there, I want us to think a little more about this very unique man named Paul. We don't know what he looked like. This is somebody's idea, but at any rate, God prepared Paul for a very special calling. He had him brought up as a Jew but gave him Roman citizenship, which would become invaluable to him at this point in his life. He was in some respects both a Jew and a Gentile. Paul could navigate in both oceans very well, and he had a unique set of character traits. For one, he was doggedly persistent. He never, ever, ever gave up. He just kept going. He was also remarkably intelligent. He was intelligent enough to write the book of Romans, which some have said is the most incredible uh, document on Christianity that has ever been put together. He was able to match wits with the high priest up in Jerusalem, and at the same time, he was able to talk a lowly escaped slave, Onesimus, into doing the right thing. He had the best education with Gamaliel. He had the skills of a tent maker so that he could earn his own way. What an incredible human being God had prepared for a very unique calling. Amen? Amazing, amazing man. But, before we put Paul in a league above your own, Remember that the same God who made Paul made you. And he prepared you equally well for your calling in life. He gave you the parents and the education and the skills and the abilities and the passions and the experiences to do the unique work that God has called you to do. Not just anybody could do Paul's work. Not just anybody can do yours. Only you can. Only you can fulfill God's calling on your life. Instead of complaining that you're not like somebody else and you didn't have this opportunity or that background or this lineage or whatever else. Be thankful for the way that God has made you. And determined to bloom wherever he has planted you. He may transplant you to some, some other place sometime. I, I don't know. He, he may allow you to bloom where you're at your whole life. I want you to understand this morning, God has a purpose. He has a reason and you are his man. You are his woman. You are his young man, young woman right now, right where you're at in your family, at work, at school in your neighborhood, wherever you may be. God has prepared you just as he did Paul. Finally this morning, I want to take a closer look at verse 19 that we read earlier. In that verse, Festus admits that Paul's charges are not civil. They're religious. Specifically, These charges are about a dead man who Paul claimed was alive. The New King James Version translates verse 19 like this. But had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who died whom Paul affirmed to be alive. A certain Jesus. My dear friends, I want us to understand this morning that Paul's accusations, Paul's trials, Paul's verdict all hang on a certain Jesus. Festus saw through the charges of sedition and rebellion straight to the heart of the matter. Paul wasn't on trial. Jesus was. His resurrection that we celebrated last Sunday was the heart of this matter. Festus could have benefited greatly from a good investigative reporter who might have gone out and researched this certain Jesus. He could do that in order to find out if Paul is lying or if he's not lying. You have to examine the claims. Unfortunately, that wasn't done. At least not for this court. Festus, aren't you just a little bit intrigued? Aren't you a little bit interested in this? Doesn't it make you ask a couple of questions about a dead man who Paul said was alive? Think about the implications, if Paul is right, about this certain Jesus. If there was one thing Paul was, he was sincere. Whether Jesus was alive or not, Paul certainly believed he was He believed it with all of his heart, and even Festus knew that. Why didn't he check it out? Why didn't he check it out for himself? Although Paul used his Roman citizenship to escape flogging, he used it later to escape escape this corrupt Jewish court, it was obvious, even to this Roman newcomer governor, that Jesus was the issue. Jesus has always been the issue. Jesus always will be the issue. Not only in Paul's life, not only in Felix's life, not only in Festus's life, but in your life and in mine. My friends, Paul was certain about this Jesus. Are you? It all comes down to Jesus. Last Sunday, as we celebrated the resurrection, we didn't go through all the proofs like we have done at some other times and some other years. But my friends, I want to tell you this morning, if you still have doubts about whether this certain dead man, Jesus, actually did come back to life, please, for your own sake, check it out without delay. Your eternity depends on this certain Jesus. Thankfully, an investigative reporter has checked it out. He has done that for us. And he even summarized his findings in a book. And it's now been made into a movie, The Case for Christ. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was a lawyer and he was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. When his wife... Met Jesus, accepted him as her savior. Lee set out to disprove the resurrection, rescue his wife, only to find that the evidence verifies Jesus' resurrection more strongly than any other event in history. As a result of that, this investigative reporter became a committed, excited believer himself. Both the movie and the book are widely available. This is my copy. I'll be happy to loan it out to anyone. But Lee himself is going to be in Winchester next September, this coming September. But don't wait until then. Do your own research now that you might know whether Paul is a whacked out crazy man or he is a messenger with the best news ever. He is risen. My brothers and sisters, find the truth today about this certain Jesus and then receive Him as your Savior and Lord if you have not already done so. Let's seek Him in prayer right now. Father God, we rejoice and we worship You this morning for Your Son Jesus, this certain Jesus. The only one who was dead and lives again. The one who has promised all who love and depend on him, all those who have accepted and follow him, to rise and live forever also. Father, I thank you today for Paul's faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, for preparing him for the work that you had for him to do. And I thank you, Lord, for preparing every single one of us in this room, every single one watching by live stream. Father, every single Christian in the world, you have prepared for the unique calling that you have placed on our lives. Help us to recognize that. Help us to appreciate it. And then, Lord, help us to fulfill our calling with what you've given us. Father, most of all, I pray that if anyone is watching, participating here today, they're not sure about Jesus, that they would check out the facts. They would look at the evidence about this certain Jesus, that they might know the truth. It all comes down to Jesus. If you're here this morning if you're watching today if you've not committed your life to him and, and you do know that you need to do that don't put it off any longer accept him right here and right now agree with God that you've sinned and fallen short of his plan for your life ask him to forgive you for those places where you have failed and to save you through the blood of his son Jesus who was dead but who lives again and he will do that right here and right now Father, I thank you and praise you for this certain Jesus whom we worship and glorify today. Father, whom we look forward to worshiping with around your throne through all eternity. And we ask it in the name of this certain Jesus and everyone said.